Welcome to the Becker's Healthcare Women's Leadership Podcast. I'm Molly Gamble with Becker's Healthcare. Today, it's my pleasure to connect with Dr. Susan Bailey, President of the American Medical Association. Dr. Bailey, an allergist and immunologist from Fort Worth, Texas, was sworn in remotely in early June as president of the AMA, making her the third consecutive woman to lead the country's largest association of physicians. Dr. Bailey, who has been active in the AMA since medical school, has held numerous leadership positions with medical associations at the local, state, and national level in, her, in addition to her full-time job at Fort Worth Allergy and Asthma Associates, where she has practiced medicine for over 30 years. So Dr. Bailey, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, it's an honor. So I, I watched your virtual inaugural address, Dr. Bailey, and as you noted in it, you know, the inauguration of the AMA president is usually a celebratory black tie affair, and yours ended up looking a lot different from what you had anticipated. And like you, many listeners with us today have had to pivot quickly from plans over the last several months. And that can be challenging just as a human, but even more so when a lot of people are watching you and how you handle that. And you know, leaders set a tone by how they handle curveballs. So I'm curious what you have found most helpful when adjusting your expectations over these last several months. It has been... Oh, I've done a lot of pivoting over the last few months, uh, as have we all. And it was fairly early on um, in the pandemic when I realized that um, a face-to-face -face meeting, uh, which would include my inauguration, which we've been planning for a year, uh, probably wasn't going to happen the way we thought it was going to happen. And, you know, I've always been the type of person that... Um, just accepts things and rolls with the punches. I knew that, you know, I wouldn't be able to have the fancy dress and the fancy party and all that great kind of stuff. But, you know, after thinking about it for a while, the shortened format, the, the, um, the fact that it was you know, taped in the studio actually is probably going to result in, in it being seen by a lot more people than it would have otherwise. Because recording a talk like uh, that in the type of, you know, big ballroom with a whole bunch of people there is, you know, sometimes kind of hard to listen to if you're not, if you're not there. Uh, not being interrupted by applause, not, uh, you know, having the, the typical response. So uh, it was very different than what I imagined, but uh, I'm pleased with the way it turned out. Um, and it's really nice to be able to just point people to say, okay, that's where my speech is if you want to hear it, and it's right there. Um, being a leader in a pandemic is um, an interesting challenge. Uh, most women, well, most leaders, period, I guess, are uh, extroverts by nature. We gain energy being around other people. I've always loved going to meetings and making new friends and seeing the friends that I've had for a long time. And for me, every every AMA meeting was like a family reunion. I just just loved being with everyone. I've always felt that everything worthwhile in life often is boiled down to relationships. And in a pandemic, all of that is stripped away. And 
also I'm having to learn how to take advantage of new methods of communicating, new ways of reaching out. And it's amazing how much more you can get done when you don't have to sit on a plane all the time. So um, I'm trying my best to make lemonade out of this big old lemon and um, have the opportunity to, to reach as many people as possible, although it'll be um, through a, a video screen. No, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense. You found some real silver linings there between time saved from travel, your speech is more accessible to people, like you said. And when you talk about these new modes of communication, has have you been surprised with, um, I, I have personally, at least, I'm curious if you feel the same way about anything. I am surprised by how connected I can feel to people via these virtual means that if you had asked me four or five months ago, I probably wouldn't have been as um, hopeful that I would. So I've been surprised myself. I'm curious if anything stands out to you in, in terms of a learning curve or trying something and, and seeing how it works with connecting with people, whether that's your own team or colleagues, networking, things like that. It makes so much difference being able to see facial expression, to see people talking, to see the environment that they're in, um, you may not really be able to make eye contact. You can kind of pretend like you are. Uh, but it does add another layer of uh, familiarity, and which I find very comforting since I, you know, enjoy relationships so much. Uh, it's really been interesting to me, um, you know, how quickly our society has adapted to doing things online and um, even, you know, as family gathering, business, um, and of course in medicine, the, the rapid transition to telemedicine um, that, you know, all, all, have, all of them have to at the same time at light speed. And um, it's, it's been easier than I thought it would and a little more satisfying than I thought it would. Well, you know, before we hopped on to connect today, I had been doing some research about you, Dr. Bailey, and I found myself just growing more and more curious uh, the more I learned about you and curious about what it was like pursuing an education and career in medicine in Texas as a woman when you did. You've noted that growing up, many of your friends' fathers were physicians, but female role models were not as common. Did you feel hyper aware of your gender as you were ascending in the world of medicine in Texas? Or uh, if not, can you, can you just tell me more about what that experience was like? You know, um, I haven't thought about it much really until recently. I knew that I wanted to be an allergist by the time I got to high school because I had allergies and asthma as a kid and my allergist practically raised me. And growing up in the um, backyard of the Texas Medical Center in Houston, a lot of my friends' dads were physicians. And so that even though there weren't any physicians or really anybody in medicine at all in my family, um, there seemed to be doctors all over the place. So uh, I really admired them. I really thought it was, um, uh, and, and so I was able to see a side of um, doctors that a lot of people don't get to see, and that is in the context of their families. Um, so they really were real people to me. And I 
went to Texas A&M in the fall of 1974. I know I'm dating myself. Everybody can count, but that's okay. Um, and I was in the first class of uh, undergraduates, a freshman at Texas A&M, that was pretty close to being uh, equally male and female. Texas A&M used to be all male, all military until the mid-1960s. So um, <clears throat> they hadn't had a lot of women there. And, but you know, our class was almost equal female and male, but pre-med classes, uh, classes where there were a lot of upperclassmen uh, were mostly male. And I just kind of got used to that pretty quickly. To me, I just kind of accepted it as the way things were. I didn't feel hyper aware about being female. I was active in student government. I was active in uh, music and drama and lots of things on campus. So uh, to me, I was just loving being a Texas Aggie and trying to soak up as much of this experience as I could. Then when I got into medical school, I was in the charter class of the College of Medicine at Texas A&M when it first opened in 1977. And there I was the first woman ever accepted to the College of Medicine. That sounds a lot cooler than it really is. Um, you know, students get accepted in, um, in waves. And I was the only woman in the first group of five students that got accepted. So I can say I was the first woman, um, which is, is been kind of fun to think that there were seven women in our class of 32. Uh, and so the awareness got definitely uh, more acute at that point in time, although it was such an atypical medical school experience being in the charter class. We had no upperclassmen. The faculty were all incredibly invested in our success. And so we were nurtured. We were loved. Uh, we were very close to each other, being such a small class. So, so that experience um, was really wonderful. And there were really only a couple of times that I can remember where um, the women kind of got picked on. Um, but it was interesting that the male students tended to pick up on that first than the women did, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, so I had a great experience, and but then I left Texas. I matched at uh, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota to do pediatrics. So um, I was gone from Texas for seven years, and um, it was a very, very different culture. I was used to wearing makeup and pantyhose and fixing my hair every morning, and um, that's not necessarily the way women did it then in the upper Midwest, but I was in pediatrics, so it was mostly women residents, although it was mostly male faculty. And I learned pretty early on that if I was in a group of residents and I was the only woman, and, and I, this happened to some extent in medical school as well, um, that I would be the one that they might remember the next day because I was different. And so I think I learned how to take advantage of that, not, um, you know, in any you know, weird kind of way. It's just um, um, being able to have relationships with faculty members and, and the consultants at Mayo. Um, 
you know, that, that helps you succeed as a physician. So um, I've, I've never really felt that, that being a woman in any of those areas really, really was a big deal or really held me back. Um, and then I came back to Texas <laughs> to go into practice. And uh, if anything, I felt, um, gosh, I can't, what's the right word? I felt um, a little less than, I guess, but that was because I had had two children and I was working part-time and spending mm-hmm. time with my kids. And that was not a real typical thing for women physicians to do back in the uh, the late 80s, you know, medicine and it still is in the most part an all or nothing kind of thing. Um, but I knew that I wanted to, to be present in my son's lives as they grew up and uh, wouldn't change a thing. That's so I, 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 fascinating, like so many remarks there, but I think one thing I, I would love to just probe a little bit further on is when you mentioned being, you know, one of the few women or the only woman helped you, it was easy to remember you. I think that's such a, you know, it can go either way where you feel immense pressure because of that. It sounds like you really saw that as an opportunity to stand out and maybe ask some questions or carve out a niche for yourself and show what you could bring in terms of your contributions and so forth. But I was curious if you had an example of that, just for other listeners, if they find themselves in a similar position, uh, how they could bring that mentality to, to that uh, in terms of using perhaps being underrepresented and not many other women like you in a group, how that can be a really beneficial thing for your own career and for your own development? Well, I think it's important uh, for women, you know, to feel comfortable around big groups of men because in today's society, uh, that's how the business world still is, sadly, uh, and how academia is. And to not, I always tried to go into things with uh, a positive outlook, um, trying to make the best of every situation, not trying to be a brown nose or anything, although I'm sure a lot of people thought I was, um, but just to um, just try to make the best of a situation that could be awkward. Um, say, for example, you know, standing around with a group of students were making rounds. Um, the attending physician, uh, you know, might be male and, you know, there might be half a dozen of us standing there. And, and if I was the only, only female, um, I definitely tried not to blend into the wallpaper. Um, I, I was proud to be there. I, um, felt like I belonged there and, um, wasn't afraid to ask questions or, um, you know, to really feel like I was a part of things. And then if we go to where you ended up at Fort Worth Allergy and Asthma, where you've been for more than 30 years, how would your colleagues there today describe you as a leader or what it's like to work alongside you? Well, I think my, um, my partners would um, describe me as um, independent, um, definitely a consensus builder, but um, very determined to do her own thing. I've been active in the county and state medical society from from day one, 
Um, and the, that flexibility was always the most important thing to me in, uh, in my practice because of my family and because of my organized medicine activities and being my own boss and being in a practice arrangement where as long as I paid my fair share of the expenses and took my fair share of the uh, call, um, they could care less if I was there or not. Um, and I've had, you know, two of the partners that I've had over 30 years have also been presidents of our county medical society. So um, it was de definitely a very like-minded group of people who are drawn to advocacy and um, are interested in, you know, trying to make to make medicine better and make the community a better place. Um, and, you know, and I can't say, um, you know, you, you never know how you come across to people, but what, um, you know, what I can say is that my medical assistant um, has been with me since 1993. Um, we have most of our employees are very, very long term. They've been there for a long time. And, and so I think that speaks a lot towards just the atmosphere that we try to generate a very family oriented, uh, relaxed, fun, but professional group. And, um, I, you know, hopefully um, I'm somebody that they like to be around because I try to be happy and have fun and um, keep my problems to myself at work. Yeah, it can be it can be an awkward question to answer, and I, I do think though it's it's my kind of my my way where I, I feel as though people can be a bit more honest if I ask what your colleagues how they would describe you versus how one would describe themselves. But independent consensus builder, you know, you've also described yourself as a passionate defender of physician independence, and passion is such an important element of effective leadership. I had a mentor who he always used to say nobody likes to follow a parked car, which was his term for people who did not possess strong conviction or enthusiasm. But at the same time, as a woman, that intensity can be a double-edged sword and it can be misinterpreted as being emotional. I'm curious if you've ever had to think about how you demonstrate passion or how that shows up in your work so you avoid that longstanding stigma. Oh, I love that expression, not wanting to follow a parked car. Uh, I'm going to have to remember that. That's, that's a really good one. Um, to me, passion does not necessarily mean emotion, um, although there's certainly some emotion in it. Um, to me, uh, being passionate about something means that you're persistent, that you don't give up, that... Um, you realize that there are going to be bumps in the road and there'll be defeats along the way, but you um, you keep at it. And, and that's the way I feel about private practice. I definitely believe that there um, is an important space for independent positions um, in this country. Uh, not everybody not every patient wants to be involved in a large behemoth um, medical system. And um, so I, I feel very strongly about that. And as I have come up in leadership through the American Medical Association, I've always tried to make sure that the, the voice of the private practitioner was heard, regardless of what we were talking about. 
um, when I was on the AMA's Council on Medical Education, and we were talking about medical schools and residency training and continuing education. Most of the members of the council were academics, and I was the only one that was in private practice. But, you know, I'm, if anything, the end user, if you will, for medical education. So I wanted to make sure that the uh, that the outcome was always kept in mind when we were discussing medical education and what that meant um, to physicians and practice. And then when I got on the AMA Board of Trustees and became Vice Speaker, then Speaker of the House of Delegates, again, very important to me that the voice of the practicing physician be heard, whether we're talking about uh, control of chronic disease or uh, physician payment issues, um, dealing with the dysfunction in medicine, um, it's just important important to me, and I feel like I have a real obligation to represent this segment of my profession. I think that's a helpful distinction in that passionate does not necessarily mean emotional, like you said, but for, for you, persistent, you don't give up. Um, and it sounds like you really take your commitment seriously to make sure you're representing those what could be underrepresented voices in our healthcare system. When you look at a lot of those larger systems that have more marketing dollars and they have more ability to get their messaging out. Um, is, is that how you think of it? Or I, I'm curious how, how you view your role in terms of making sure that the independent physician is considered in discussions and conversations and decisions. Well, uh, say, for example, when um, MACRA was passed, uh, the SGR was replaced, and we um, came up with different ways to um, reimburse physicians in, um, the, in Medicare. Um, it was going to require a lot of measurement, a lot of documentation. Of course, it really, you know, um, jump-started the use of electronic medical records. Um, so that you could um, show that you were using it meaningfully uh, or meaning, meaningless use, I called it for a long time. Um, it was apparent that there was an assumption that doctors were going to have help doing all these things, that doctors were going to have IT people, that doctors were going to have um, someone help them gather that data, that doctors were going to have... Um, you know, the infrastructure to be able to um, measure quality, as it were. And, you know, and, and my practice is an illustration of how that couldn't be further from the truth. I am my IT person. Um, I'm the one that um, takes, uh, you know, does measurement of things. I'm the one I sent in my, uh, you know, meaningful use criteria myself. Um, and if, and so it's the, the, um, the bureaucratic, um, quagmire that exists now for physicians, it's tough enough to do when you are in a big system and you've got IT people and quality people to, to help you along the way. Uh, it could be an incredible challenge if you're in practice, private practice by yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't help but ignore, there is a parallel there between the, the assumptions about independent physicians and the resources they have. And, you know, you are the IT person. You wear several hats at your practice. 
And also, I, I just think this is worth noting, but women too, I think this pandemic has just shown when women are working from home, um, not specific to healthcare, but just in general, it's often them that are taking on caring for elderly parents, homework, childcare, um, women's research compared to men's has gone down in the past couple of months because of their ability to invest time on, on their own research is been not equal to that of men in most households. So um, as you were speaking, Dr. Bailey, it just struck me as I think there's a lot going on um, nationwide with this pandemic um, falling on the shoulders of women and also the experience you outlined there as an independent physician too. There seem to be some, some parallels or some through lines. Well, yes, that's interesting. I, um, you know, I, I like to think that, um, you know, women are kind of just by our very nature, uh, good multitaskers and I think it's been good for everybody in our society to uh, see what it's like trying to work and raise a family uh, at the same time um, and, and I think a lot of men have gotten a taste of what what that's like that they've never had before and and so my hope is is that going forward um, that they're you know, might be a more equal balance of responsibilities uh, at home and and with family um, in the future because people realize that it's just not fair for the for the women to have to shoulder all of it. Um, it's 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 been an interesting process that we've all become. We've all had to change the way we do things, and um, but I think one of the worst things that um, could happen as a result of this is that uh, a male hierarchy decides, well, that's okay. The, the, the women can stay home, you know, they, you know, they can work from home and we'll let the men come back to the office. I, I think that would be the most wasteful, uh, almost criminal um, social developments that we could imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. So much still unfolding and we'll see, Hopefully we walk out of this a more uh, empathetic and informed society as it relates to those, those roles and what we're seeing behind the scenes as, as many people are working from home. But you know, your presidency, you're, you're about a month in, you, it's already been quite remarkable, uh, but you are, like I said in my introduction, the third consecutive female president of the AMA. And I'm curious, by the time you pass the baton to your successor, what do you hope the association and members remember most about this really incredible stretch of years when women led the country's largest association of physicians? I am hopeful that it will be a time that's remembered for uh, the president um, <clears throat> being tough, getting the job done, being able to be flexible, to uh, be able to pivot quickly uh, and to keep their um, eye on the ball. Um, the, the women that preceded me, Dr. Barb McEnany and Dr. Patrice Harris are amazing, strong women. Uh, we had, were good friends. We enjoyed being together. We really saw ourselves as a team, um, which is a, you know, a leadership style that, you know, doesn't happen as readily when they're either male-female mixtures or perhaps all-male mixtures, but we really realized that we had something very special and a very unique opportunity. And I'm, you know, hoping that um, the, the 
historians will look back and say, you know, that was, that was a really great time, and, and they did a wonderful job. One thing that uh, Dr. Harris said at her um, installation, um, and of course, being the first African-American female AMA president, she said she felt that her responsibility, um, yes, she's the first, but she also didn't want to be the last. And um, I think that we've all got to reach a, a helping hand out to the women that are coming up and helping them understand that, um, you know, this is not a fluke. This is not, um, this was not an accident. We're going to see a lot more women in leadership from now on and um, help each other figure it out. Absolutely. Working toward a future where one day that fact won't even inspire a question from someone like me, right? So right. sounds great. <laughs> a tough president who got the job done. She pivoted quickly. She was flexible and she kept her eye on the ball. Dr. Bailey, I, I wish you the absolute best with your presidency and moving forward over these next several months um, in these interesting times we're living in. And I'm so, so grateful for your time today, given what else you have in front of you for, for joining us for this conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun, and um, I really appreciate you having me on. It is our pleasure. Thank you.